In Martha Ann Toll's debut novel, The Three Muses, the Holocaust survivor reinvents himself in the United States and falls in love with a ballerina he first saw in Paris. Their worlds collide in New York City. Will he find love and salvation or only more loss? This is Book Public from Texas Public Radio. I'm Yvette Benavides. Martha Antold's debut novel introduces us to Janko Stein. His parents and little brother were murdered by the Nazis, and he's taken to a concentration camp where he's forced to work in the kitchen and sing for the commandant. He somehow survives and begins life anew in the United States, where he's adopted by a Jewish family who lost their own son in World War II. Yanko becomes John Curtin, a name he chose for himself. It's one of the only major things in his life he's been able to orchestrate and choose for himself. Catherine Silman changed her name, too, to Katia Simonova, but that act had nothing to do with independence or the freedom of self-selection. It's a name given to her by her choreographer. As a ballerina, there's little she can do in her life except immerse herself in dance. Worlds do collide when John spies Katya on the stage in Paris. He so much as falls in love with her and cannot stop thinking about her, holding her up as his ideal partner. Somehow their paths cross again in New York City. All the while, each is dealing with a kind of generational trauma. He possesses a survivor's guilt and cannot escape the demons of the torturous existence in the camps. Gatia has her own secret pain. Her mother was an alcoholic who died in a terrible accident. John and Katya are burdened by memories. They find a certain kind of peace each in the other, but can compassion win when each is still battling so much grief. I spoke to author Martha Ann Toll about her novel, The Three Muses. First off, can you just tell us about The Three Muses? What's this novel about? Sure, and I'm so happy to be here. Thank you, Yvette, for inviting me. Um, The novel is called Three Muses, and the three muses of the title are song, discipline, and memory. And I found these three muses while I was doing research and thinking about how to frame a novel, and it turns out that they are from... um, the Greek region of Boeotia, and they came through history. I mean, you can find a little bit written about them, but there's no real stories attached to them. But for me, I am super interested in all of those subjects. So they, when I read about it, it was a bit like lightning. I felt like, oh my God, this is everything that I care about and write about. Um, and I'm happy to say sort of how they go into the book, but I, I want to wait and make sure I'm not getting off topic here. Oh, no. I, and I love this idea that, I mean, it has to start somewhere and you just never know where, where it's going to begin. I uh, love that. It's so true. Yeah. So true. Sometimes it's just a word or a scene or something like that. And you'd think, you know, something like the the three muses and, and they're sort of detached from any sort of foundational thing you could go and research easily. And it seems very sort of woo-woo or esoteric and way out there. And it's not. It's so ex- It becomes so accessible. So, And there's so many things about this novel that I find to be that way, that you, you it, it's not sort of beyond anybody's grasp. You know, this idea of, oh, the three muses and then all this, all this detail, for instance, about ballet. And yet, 
it's not an issue. You sort of are so in the story and you just sort of figure things out. I just, I love that about this novel. Thank you so much. And um, one of my early mentors, Paul Harding, who's a writer that I love, really helped me think about this in that he said we should write to our highest level of reader and just presume that the readers will follow along with you if they're there. And I really love that. Um, and I believe in a partnership between writer and reader. I really think it's 50-50. And we have to allow the readers to expand their own imagination as we're writing. I love this. I love this idea. You don't hear it all the time. <laughs> um, so I think it's, I think that's fantastic. And we have two main stories here that converge in such interesting ways. There's John Curtin and Katya Simonova. But these characters have two names. Can you tell us about these name changes? I just find that there's this very interesting idea about dual identities, an identity that, that they are trying to achieve that's se separate from what they used to be and for very different reasons, of course. But can you talk about that, the two names for each of these characters? Sure. sure. So John um, starts off like life as Janko Stein. He lives in Germany and he um, has a regular childhood until Hitler comes to power and ultimately his family is deported to a concentration camp. Um, and his mother saves his life by telling the SS officer that he can sing. So he's pulled out of line as a little boy, 11 or 12 year old, and spends the war singing for the camp commandant, um, who is the murderer of his family. So that leaves him with a terrible dilemma and trauma. And he is ultimately... Um, allowed into the United States as about a 15-year-old. And he, he's had a tiny, tiny bit of English. And he says, oh, everybody in, the, in America is named John. That's what I think. And I want to be named John Curtin because Curtin symbolizes everything I want to close off from my terrible, terrible past. I want to start over again. But he gets bad advice from somebody on the ship coming over to America and misspells his name. So he goes from Yonko Stein to John Curtin, and those are the two sides of his life. Um, and they symbolize different things um, in those two sides of his life. Um, the ballerina is named, and, and I should say that John is loosely associated with the muse of song, which for him is both this way that he saved his life, but also the means to his family's destruction. Katya Simonova starts out life in Queens, New York, and she comes from a Catholic family. Her name is Catherine Silman, and she loses her mother tragically when she's seven, and her aunt and her dad buy her um, ballet lessons in an effort to sort of give her some structure and take her mind off this tragedy, and she falls in love with ballet, and she's very smitten with the head of the ballet company who trains her, some might say grooms her. His name is Boris Yanikov. And when she's ready to join the company, he takes her aside and says, you have to have a different name. Your name is going to be Katya Simonova. So she is named by someone else. And the impact on her being given this big fancy Russian name is a bit of an imposter syndrome. She has to grow into it and learn how to 
earn it, basically. Um, and she goes on to have a very fraught, complicated relationship with her co-creator, Boris Yannikov. I want to say something about the parents in this novel uh, before we go on. Um, so Yanko Stein had his parents in Germany. He lost his family. Uh, the Nazis murdered his family. And then in the States, he's adopted by Barney and Selma. And I just found the 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 characters of the parents in this novel um, just so, I, I don't even know how to describe it. It's realistically drawn, of course, but just so whole and full and quirky and and so believable. Um, there's just something about Barney and Selma for me, and then also about Catherine's father trying to do um, what he could. He's a very interesting multidimensional character for me, too. He's a man of a particular era, doing the best he can as a single parent after uh, Catherine's mother dies. I just was so struck by the layers of story and characterization in this novel um, that that just enriches then the characters of uh, of John Curtin and Katya Simonova. Oh, I really appreciate that. And um, as we were talking before we got on air, I've had the opportunity to do a fair number of podcasts and no one has really talked about the parents. So I really appreciate that. I'm a parent myself, so of course I know that we're multidimensional, <laughs> yeah. uh, full of um, mistakes and all those things, <laughs> doubts, all of those things. So you might have been, I might have been reflecting a bit of that. <laughs> <laughs> but there's something so interesting. So, for example, with the mother characters in in the book, I mean, Selma is is just uh, this force. And she's she's just so wonderful and so um, nurturing, and so compassionate. And but the thing is that that for John, his memories of his mother are tinged with something kind of negative, right? He he sort of regrets the things that happened to him in the concentration camps. And he has he has this memory of his mother sort of sending him off, and. Go, getting back in the line with the baby and just focusing on the kissing the baby, get, keeping the baby's attention and not looking back at at Yanko. And so there's this little bit of a, of an abandonment, a sense of abandonment that he um, really d doesn't let go of for a long time. And the same thing happens to Katya as, as we, see that eventually she learns what really happened to her mother. And there's this, again, this idea of abandonment. So the, I feel like this this idea of our um, flawed parents who do the best they can, because this is true of parents. Parents are flawed. We're all flawed, and we all do the best that we can. But there are these huge traumatic forces that are moving these, these mothers in the novel in in ways that, yes, that profoundly impact their children. And it, there's something about this coming to terms with what our mothers 
are sort of victim to, right? And, and in this era, perhaps alcoholism was not known as a disease. You know, we would tell people to buck up and just quit drinking and without re- realizing that, that it's just a terrible disease that, um, that has such a firm grasp on people. And, but there's something about the mothers here that I feel is, is just so incredibly interesting and that the characters are caring so much about their mothers with them through the novel. And it's, it's just something so poignant and, and powerful for me. Um, well, I really appreciate that. And um, Yanko, in terms of Muti, the, his, his German mother, his birth mother, um, I think as a child, he can't possibly appreciate what she did for him. She understood that she was in line for the gas chamber with the baby. And she did whatever she could to save her son's life and her older son's life. She had made a Sophie's choice, basically. And she also says to Yanko, you know, you're the man, after his father dies, um, she says, you're the man of the family now. And he's burdened with this responsibility of being a man, but he's actually a child and he doesn't understand where his mother went. And there are legions of stories about the Holocaust where parents made horrific, horrific decisions to send their children away or to hide them. Some of them threw their children out of train windows just to save their lives. But of course, it's still an abandonment because we look at the world through a child's lens. And in Katya's case, um, she does find out that her mother was an alcoholic. And so that kind of it lends her a feeling of abandonment. With John's adoptive parents, Bernie and Selma, they've had the opposite, where they had a son who was killed in action in World War II in Sicily. So they, in a sense, have been abandoned by their son, but they want to give back, and they want to adopt John so that they can give what they would have given to their own son to this a refugee who basically doesn't have any family. So I, I appreciate that. I guess it really is parenting and all those complexities and abandonment is definitely a theme, even as parents may not perceive themselves as doing that. In, in Yonko's case, she was saving his life. Exactly. And Katya is a ballerina. And where did your, well, I have to say this, um, the scenes that describe the choreography, I, I felt a little exhausted reading them. I felt like like I was putting myself through through all of these amazing moves. And I say exhausted in like the best possible way. Like I got a workout. Like like it, the the those scenes are so amazing. I thought, how is Martha Antol going to write about that? And then you did. <laughs> And I know next to nothing about ballet, and I learned so much. And I could imagine Katya on the stage uh, um, doing these incredible leaps and and pirouettes and and all of this. Uh, So first, I have to say that. But then, so this comes from your own interest in in the ballet, yes? Yes, and it's interesting. Um. I, one of the things I, I, I so appreciate that because one of the things I really wanted to do was lift the curtain on ballet and kind of show readers that it is so much work. It might be the hardest job in the world. I think it's, 
definitely up there with professional athletes. Um, and in some ways, it's it's much, much harder than professional athletes because you have to have a full musical knowledge as well as this complete physical control over your body. Um, I took ballet as a young person, and, and it was permanently imprinted on me. I definitely don't have a ballerina's body or feet, which is a big part of being a ballerina. You have to have the right feet. Um and but it was imprinted on me and i've been thinking about how ballet has seeped into the culture i um when i was a child the the exercise boom hadn't really started and the place where i saw things like leggings and warm up clothes and uh, bar work were in the ballet all of those things came into popular usage later Things that we now take for granted really came from ballet. Ballet is an extraordinary art form and with tremendous amount of deprivation for the people who go forward with it. It's just brute physical labor and the injury level is really high. So it's a bit hard to square with the beauty of the art form, but I also really appreciate the discipline that's involved, which is where the muse of discipline comes in. And also the negatives, the, the hard, hard work and the um, difficulty in succeeding. Yeah, and it, it just, and so there too, again, it's sort of like this idea of the three muses and the muse of discipline and then the way that Katya's life intersects with John's life and his sort of, uh, his his the pain he feels when with music of all things right it's it's so unusual to read about a character who is rejecting music and and yet we come to understand why that happens to him um but i feel it's it's so wonderful that you can integrate subjects that you're so knowledgeable about and so and passionate about in your writing which is another passion so I want to ask you about that process because I feel like you feel, it seems to me like you're a consummate researcher, but then you just know about all of these other things. And so I wonder about this book and how much fun was it or, or, or is it not fun to do it? I don't know. Well, no, I loved writing this book. I struggled a lot with it. I had a lot of questions. I liked, I love the challenge of getting music and dance on the page. And especially as a writer, I, I think it's such an interesting dilemma because a book is a, something tangible. It's a three-dimensional object that you can hold and keep and reread. Whereas music and dance are absolutely ephemeral. They take place at a certain place in time and then they go away forever. And even music is can be recorded um, both in terms of sheet music like a book can. So I'm super interested in crossing those art forms. And I was very, that was one of the challenges that I really wanted to take on in this book. And I did do research, but to a certain extent, I feel like I've been doing research my whole life. These are art forms I've been interested in my whole life. Um, and I think that readers, or and speaking of myself as a reader, I love total immersion in something. And it doesn't really matter if you're 
were interested in the subject to start out with. It's just fun to be in a completely different world as a reader. And I think that's one reason we read is to be transported to somewhere that we're not familiar with. Um, so I didn't, I was so kind of happy to hear you say you didn't know anything about ballet because this book is meant to be able to transmit some of the feeling of it, even if you've never been to a ballet. Exactly. I mean, it sure does that. And this is a story about a lot of things, including surviving trauma. Surviving trauma, even connected to major events in history that, as they're happening, perhaps don't seem like major events in history to the, to the person who's in those spaces. And I feel like there's a lot for us to glean today in 2022 about that, about how in you know in 2022 we're all sort of or maybe for the for the past few years we've all been moving in these spaces that people will look back on as major sort of historical moments um so i just feel like there's so much for us to learn about the w- ways we adapt and live through the worst thing that's ever happened to us I really appreciate that, and I feel very strongly that this book has a message for contemporary readers. I mean, as writers, we write in a certain context, a certain historical context, but I feel in America we're having um, a lot of simultaneous traumas, and nobody really has good language for talking about it. So So John comes, in my book, comes to this country as a refugee, and I think we still have trouble communicating to the public that if you are a refugee, you are not coming to this country by choice, or I should say you are not leaving your home country by choice. You are leaving because of terrible, terrible trauma. And I think that we as Americans could do better to understand who is arriving on our shores. These are people who very much want to remake their lives and have suffered terribly. And I feel that way in our own culture. Um, You mentioned Uvalde before we got on the program. I mean, you can't have a horrific event like that and bring in grief counselors and be better two weeks from now. Mm -hmm. We don't, as we aren't able to process the trauma that's in our everyday news. And one thing I wanted to communicate is there really isn't any closure. What I think can help people work through trauma is being able to speak about it and being able to be heard and learn how to manage it. But even as John does land in the best of circumstances, he lands in with a loving couple and a loving family. Um, he's never going to get over his past, but he can still make something wonderful out of his life. And I very much wanted to communicate that. And I do think there are a lot of lessons for, for life today in America. Martha Antol, thank you so much for talking to me today. I really appreciate it. Thank you. It's been so fun, Yvette. I really appreciate your interest in my book, and I just appreciate the chance to talk to you. Thank you. Martha Antol is the author of The Three Muses. This has been Book Public from Texas Public Radio. Write to us at bookpublic at tpr.org. Jacob Rosati composed our theme music. Dan Katz is Texas Public Radio's news director. I'm Yvette Benavides.